Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. Today on the show, I had Brandon Isles. What a cool show. So in 2011, Brandon launched, I think with his friend, the first uh, Bitcoin Android app. Now this was actually predated BitInstant. He beat me. I should allow him to do this show, not me interview him. But he ended off right after he did that. He ventured out and worked at, as a senior software engineer at Google, worked at worked at, at Uber, worked on some really cool machine learning things, uh, um, auto, you know, autocorrect, but also autofill, you know, things that predict what you want to know and what you want to search for. He took all that knowledge and information that he had, and he came back into Bitcoin and launched a company called Ampleforth, which I don't even know it existed, but the, the ability to take money out of circulation, not only just push supply in on a blockchain, for me is super cool. You guys are going to love this episode. I learned a lot. You are too. I'll talk to you guys just in a minute. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them, and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at BlockworksGroup.io. That's BlockworksGroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Brandon Isles, thank you so much. Is that the proper way to pronounce your name? That's right. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for Um, inviting me. So I have to tell you, um, you win. You won. Like, you beat me. Um, (sighs) You did it. Because uh, in my research, I realized that we actually got involved in Bitcoin at around the same time. But you launched um, your Bitcoin Android wallet, like in July 1st or something, 2011. I didn't launch BitInstant until like July 31st. So you beat me by uh-huh. like 30 days of doing something oh, yeah. in this space. So you here, you should now be interviewing me now. <laughs> That's how we should do this, this show. Yeah, but you stayed with Bitcoin longer than I did. So, what do you mean so by you that? For that. Um, so I was, I got exposed to Bitcoin really early. Um, and then I sort of, uh, yeah, built this uh, Bitcoin wallet on the Android um, in partnership with a friend of mine at the time. So it wasn't just me. Um, but I was also at Google at the time. And so I was also getting deep into machine learning and AI. And so I was sort of given this choice of, okay, do you want to spend your time on you know, Bitcoin? Uh, or do you want to sort of learn as much as you can about machine learning in this special place that didn't really exist anywhere else? Yeah. And so, so I kept an eye on, on Bitcoin you know, after that, but I didn't get super involved. Instead, I just sort of went headfirst into the, the machine learning realm. That's such a crazy... Um choice that you've had to make because a lot of people made had to make similar choices um unlike you i didn't really have an, a choice to like i didn't um have a, a job to go to or something else i can do i was just fresh out of college and so this was like the only thing i could do because there was really nothing else uh to do for me but um what was interesting and and for the best is it's almost like what happened to you is almost like when uh the son of a king 
you know, has to grow up and the, the king sends him off somewhere for like, you know, his early childhood to learn the world and then come back to make, you know, the kingdom a better place from what he's learned. That's kind of like what you did. You went to Google, you went to work at Uber, and then you come back to crypto and you bring us all that knowledge of how to run companies the right way, how to run, you know, things properly. And 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 so, I mean, what are, what are some things that you learned or what, what's different about working in crypto versus working at like, you know, two blue chip companies, basically? Oh, sure. Yeah. I think I definitely learned a lot from those experiences. I don't know that I would trade those for anything right now, given the people I met and, you know, all the experiences I had there. Um, you, you do get a very different set of skills, I think, working at a, a big company like that. Um, whereas most of most crypto teams are very small and tend to be very distributed, you know, all over the world, yeah. as opposed to, you know, in, in one office. Um, but you do learn a good, a lot of good habits about how to work with people, how to organize yourself and how you, how you approach and solve problems. Um, so I think all of that definitely helps. And those are uh, sort of general skills, not necessarily skills specific to any one area. I think um, anyone who gets a chance to work in that sort of environment, you can translate those pretty much anywhere you go else afterwards. Um, um, yeah, in terms of like uh, technical stuff, um, you know, it was a sort of different layer of the stack, although I did sort of work on lots of different areas from, you know, systems and servers up to, you know, data science and that sort of thing. Um, but a lot of the, the difficulties and what makes crypto uh, interesting now is not necessarily the technical side, but the sort of economic side. Um, I think it's We're gonna, really... And you're trying to transition into Ampleforth, but I know you're... And it's, it's it, first of all, is so cool. Um, smart, com, com, smart commodity money, when I was doing the research, um, basically, I've never heard of another coin or token or project that is not only putting supply in but also pulling supply out in an elastic way based on it's, it was, it's the coolest thing. I want to get into it because some of these new projects, I think, the, you know, I talked to a lot of people that get involved in the space early on, but then I talked to guys like you also get on, but are doing really cool things. Now, the things that are happening and the trends that I'm starting to notice are these like central, not just like in the fed, but saying, Hey, you know, monetary theory is a good idea. Um, what if we can make it completely decentralized and Oracle based or whatever? And that seems like what, uh, the road that you're traveling down. Uh, for sure. Yeah. So one of my biggest, um, reasons for not really getting deeper into, um, I mean, back then it was just called Bitcoin. So that's all there was, um, was I wasn't sure that I was on board with the sort of economics behind it. So like when I was in college, really? I'd taken, uh, I taken a year of uh, econ, like micro macro, just really basic stuff. Um, and I had some general ideas of, yeah, we used to be on the gold standard and we came off and that was probably a good thing. Why are, why are people trying to go back, you know, to a sort of gold standard like asset? Um, you know, it, it's funny when I, when it's a wildly did, different theory though, than a lot of the early Bitcoin folk. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah um, interesting. um, I don't know if I necessarily fit that, fit that same mold. Um, and so uh, it, it's funny thinking back in my mindset back then, my mind immediately went to the maximalist case of, okay, what, what would happen if the entire world moved back onto a sort of fixed supply, you know, based currency? Um, it seemed, seemed re almost regressive to me. Um, not, not that it, I'm saying Bitcoin should have been any different because I think if it had gone with any other decision, then it would not have been successful. I think that was absolutely like a core, core feature that allowed it to bootstrap value. I, I, <clears throat> I get what you're I get where you're going, but I think Satoshi's kind of idea when it comes to the supply of Bitcoin and having it completely almost as if the printer is set to autopilot and the keys are thrown away for the next hundreds of years, 
that the market, his, I guess his, uh, and I can't speak for him, but his political theory, his economic theory from, from the readings is that the market and the demand will follow the supply so that almost how the having has become an event, right? Like the having has become an event around the industry. And it's almost like these self-fulfilling prophecies that have to happen for the industry. It's like these checkpoints that our industry and everything continue needs to grow and grow every four years. Um, but I do agree with you because uh, I, I'm looking at and investing in and advising on a lot of these um, new like central bank style uh, stable coins, but also like projects like yours. And I have to say, like, it's the first time in, in a very long time that I'm getting excited again about about crypto from just these new next level, because um, what I've learned is that finance is more than just sending money from person to person. It's also access to complete capital markets. What do you think about that? So access to complete capital markets. Yeah, I think um, like lending, borrowing, so, yeah. you know, oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that, that strikes me every time I learn anything new in in economics is just how deep it is. Like everything you, There's like a you rabbit learn shows hole. you how much more there is left that you don't know, right? Um, and the more you learn, the more complex and harder to model everything seems to be. Um, and so, um, yeah, so there's, it's actually a really exciting time right now, almost like a Cambrian explosion of all these different sort of economic experiments that are going on. And I think a lot of them, if there's any, any, um, any mistake that some people are making is that they try to get a little bit too complicated, right? They try to account for everything that they can in the marketplace. Um, the marketplaces are so so complicated and unpredictable. Some, sometimes I think that can lead to lead to um, mistakes or designs that break down in situations that you're not necessarily planning for. Um, so I think simplicity of these systems is something that we should you know, absolutely value because it helps with transparency because you know it lets people understand what's going on. It also helps with some predictability. I think as long as things are directionally correct, like the incentives are pointing in the right direction and the market can understand the system that they're working with, um, and as long as that's pointing to some sort of equilibrium value, it should eventually reach there. Um, it doesn't need to do so immediately, but the markets, uh, as they learn a system, will sort of get a little bit more, um, a little better at, at working with it and predicting where it's going to land next. Um, but uh, yeah, so it was it was really uh, after I did a lot more reading in economics that I came back around to crypto, right? So, so in the early earliest days when I first you know. Uh, read the the Bitcoin paper. Um, you know, I had this this thought of the, of going back to fixed supply asset that seemed sort of regressive, um, and then as well as some like you know te- technical hangups about the scalability and that sort of thing when you're when you're used to working with internet scale yeah. systems. Did you see it's, like it's scale, scaling problems early on? Did you look at this and say, "Wow, how's this going to scale?" Um, yeah, so so I had, a, I had a sort of funny exposure to the, the the Bitcoin paper in the sense that I think most people um, hear about it from someone else, a friend says, "Hey, you should check this out," or they hear about it and something that's important, something like that. Um, I, I read it almost purely by happenstance, um, completely out of context. So I was you know, talking with a family friend of ours, and just out of conversation, it came up, "Hey, wouldn't it be cool if there was digital cash?" And so I, I went to to Google like yeah. a, a month or two later, typed in digital cash, and that was the first result, just the PDF. And so I read it, read it completely in isolation. Um, I had a background in computer science, and so the the context. Oh, so you didn't have any of the background it. behind it. You just had read the paper. No. Okay, got it. Exactly. Good context, yeah. actually. Um, yeah. So so um, I think that that was important, and maybe why I had 
came at it with sort of different perspective than most other people who did. Um, but my first thought was, um, wow. So there's, there's uh, a sort of chain of blocks that grows forever. That's, that seems crazy, right? Yeah. That's, that's not, that's not how computer systems normally work. A database is sort of self-contained and live in a place. Um, and, and then like, you know, there will only be a certain number of blocks and certain size transactions and per block. And so I was, you know, when you compare this to um, normal financial systems where people are you know, spending and transacting money, um, it just seemed uh, almost like a toy to me. Um, that, that's so, fair. That's very fair. Yeah. And, and I think most of us still think that Bitcoin is a just a big experiment. For sure. Yeah. And I think that's one of the great things about it is that it is sort of a, a giant experiment. Um, and we, so it's, so it's an exciting time right now because um, with this technology, it unlocks a lot of economic experiments that people couldn't have done before. Right. So economics so far has been about, you know, observing and reporting and not so much about experimenting. Or Dude, building, you're literally but, speaking my language because uh, it's so brilliant what you just said. And I just, if, if you will, let me just repeat that in, in, in similar words. But Bitcoin is the largest crypto as a whole now. But Bitcoin in the beginning is the largest socioeconomic experiment the world has ever seen simply for that reason is now instead of having theory, academic and education, and we can hypothesize in real life with real uh, incentives of financial and, and social incentives. So you have like a real money experimentation here. So if anything, this will have been an epic, amazing human experiment that we should all be fortunate and lucky to have been a part of and to be a part of now. Not like it's over, but to be a part. Editors should edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I feel like... Um economists have been waiting for decades for, for these yes. sorts of capabilities and it's a chance of a lifetime to be part of it. So wait, um, I want to just kind of tie up the, the scale, the scale of the scaling question really quick. So do you think that the, the path that we're on now in Bitcoin specifically for scalability is, is a, is a good path to have multiple layers? Cause now you have the self-contained ba- database won't get larger. Like, like we talked about and now you'll have multiple layers and people can, um, transact on various, uh, you know, on the main chain or on various chains based on their security or privacy wanting of that. You know what I mean? Hold on, I dropped my mm-hmm. pen. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So scalability, if you can get it is great, right? So no one should ever argue against scalability if it's available and possible to, to create. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so you can, you can try to scale the base chain as much as you can. And then, uh, when you, when you start to hit limits there, you can start to you know, go up layers like lightning network and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, I think, I think we're, we're doing everything we can. A lot of smart people are you know, sort of thinking in that layer of the stack and that's a good thing. Um, uh, it was, you know, after I started, you know, reading a lot more about economics, that I started to, uh, discount the importance of, you know, the scalability of, of this, these sort of digital independent monies, so to speak. So it was, um, so my, my first, uh, exposure was on the technical side and also as a technical person, I think that's probably common. Most people in the space seem to be technical first. Um, uh, but it was only after reading, you know, much older economics documents that I sort of, you know, came around and started to see the, the value of, of things like Bitcoin, even if it wasn't able to scale completely. Right. So, um, the idea of an independent money, so to speak, um, is much older than, than Bitcoin. Um, and you know, addresses um, some very important problems, I think, in sort of international trade and, and econ. Um, you know, it was, you know, first 
proposed by some economists back in the seventies, um, uh, people like Hayek, right. Who yeah. were writing about independent monies. Um, and you know, they were in a time really like sort of unprecedented time because we had just come off of, you know, the Bretton Woods standard. There were, there's a lot of uncertainty about how these new systems would work. They were facing potentially very high inflation and people were asking really tough questions. Like how do we, how do we keep these, these things in check? Right. Because we, some of the safeguards that we used to have um, in terms of redeemability and that sort of thing don't really exist anymore. And so they started exploring some of these ideas about having, you know, government independent money that could operate concurrently and act as a, as a check against you know, inflation and increasing the severe cycles of booms and busts. So, um, so for me, like the, the biggest value of Bitcoin, I think, is the, the the possibility for it to be the sort of check against you know inflation and boom, increasing boom bust cycles, which doesn't necessarily um, require huge scale and, and transactions and that sort of thing, as long as it continues to exist and. Um, uh, can operate as sort of, you know, exit optionality or, you know, competitive check. Then it's sort of doing a lot of, a lot of what it, it needs to be doing. Scalability on, on top is, um, of course, nice to have, but I think it's not required for at least that, that base level of, of value that, that it can yeah. give. When you were at Google and at Uber, you worked a lot with um, with machine learning, with, with you know, auto, with, with searching and the ability for, for, you know, the internet to basically know what you want to search for before you search for it. Um, in, in light of the current events of the day with, you know, um, not just coronavirus and contact tracing, which is a huge fear, but with also like protesters and demonstrations and things like that. Um, do you think that that machine learning is is something that we should continue to, to, to a little bit fear in terms of um, how we're profiled and how we, you know, just become a number in a system that eventually governments can can, you know, rate us on. Uh, you know, our potential ability to overthrow the government, for example, you know, using all that data. Um, yeah, great question. I think there, there's two sides to that. So, um, so one, this is the one that people, I think, uh, think about the most and you see the most in, in the press yeah. is um, this idea of data and privacy. Um, so yeah, you know, every digital system you use now, you leave a sort of breadcrumbs behind you and fingerprints about how you use it and that sort of thing, which can be both good and bad. Right. So, um, you know, every time you make a credit card purchase, um, they can look at your history of purchases and then do, you know, fraud protection. Like, okay, is this likely to be this actually, actually this person making this, yeah. this charge? Um, but it's gotten so that, good now that you don't even need to call your credit card company if you're going traveling to Europe now, because even mm -hmm. if you're traveling to Europe and you're buying food at a restaurant that's similar to something that you would eat, it just, it knows and it doesn't hit the fraud. Like American Express is really good at that. American Express, you never have to call them anymore. Right. Yeah. It's almost like credit card companies now are machine learning companies and then yeah. they do infrastructure to support that. Um, it's pretty incredible what, the, what they're able to do. So it's both powerful and scary because now, you know, this, this company knows everything about you and what you're doing, what you're spending money on. Um, and I think, um, I don't think that's necessarily bad if people understand what's going on. So I, I'm huge um, proponent of allowing people to have the choice. Right. So um, it's nice. I think it's good that that is in the market. I think it's good that people can have the ability to use products like that because it does help you a lot in your day to day life. Um, but for people who don't want to, they should be able to, you know, not use it or you know, ideally put some controls of, of what sort of uh, data exists about them and how long it's kept for and that sort of thing. Is this um, something that, that a government should uh, potentially create like the inter the constitution of the internet, you know, like the rights, I would like to see a global initiative of like, 
the constitution of the internet. But there's no incentive for them to do that because the internet is now mm. have be, has become a tool like, you know, for better or for worse, the internet has become a tool like money and information to like control the strings of, of the people that, that live in that country. Um, yeah, well, you're seeing um, some increasing regulation in this space, right? So there's the GDPR in, in Europe and then um, California has a very similar sort of legislation. I, I'm not sure the status of that it might have already gone through or it's going through very soon. Um, so I think these are all great steps. Um, I, I think it, it is perhaps necessary for um, for regulation to sort of step in and start to to take some control here because otherwise it's behind systems that you have no visibility into otherwise, um, which, um, you know, using open source systems is great, but, um, it's not the case that every business is going to choose to open source all of their code. Right. And so you have this choice of using it or not using it. If there's some regulation in here that regulates how it works, then maybe you can have something in between. It's finally here. The new BitPay card that I've been talking about for the past few months. I've been using the BitPay card since 2016 and BitPay now has relaunched the whole program with such cool features. The reloading has no conversion fees to go from Bitcoin right onto the card and you can load the card whenever and wherever you want to. It has built in contactless pay an EMV chip built in right into the card, and so much more. The limits and rates are amazing. Uh, this is a bank account in your pocket. Just download the latest version of the BitPay app, and you can order the card right in the app. I just did it. I went through the whole process. took five seconds. Check it out. Download the BitPay app today. Yeah, you're describing voluntarism, which is a huge tenement of um, the early like crypto anarchist community. Um, Roger Veer follows it, you know, like uh, very much so. Um, I, I like a lot of the aspects of it. And the basic idea is that you shouldn't force, you know, anyone else to do anything that they don't want to do. Um, but other than that, you should have all the freedoms and rights that you that you want. Um, so earlier I was alluding to a question about economic theory. Um, and now that I've asked you that other question. Um, so so economic theory has has told us or has taught us that, you know, you print money when times are bad or whatever. And you help the economy out, you, you, you manipulate, you pull the levers, you do what you got to do. But then when the economy is good, you pull money out and you at the same time, you got to do kind of the opposite. And you got it's a balance. You know, the, the, the central bank or the Federal Reserve, you know, the, the early the early economic theory. And that's why I don't believe that uh, good intentions are transferable and we shouldn't set bad precedents. But, um, you know, the early economic theory told us that. And at least in the past hundred years or whatever, we've been following uh, this economic theory. Um, we've not done the opposite. We've not, you know, we've not pulled back money in. We've just printing, printing, inflation, inflation, and it's changed that economic theory. With ample forth, you've created a cryptocurrency that, and it's so cool that essentially rebalances itself based on. And tell me if I'm explaining it right. Based on the demand of the day. And so it almost like, like will split itself or it'll combine itself. And so someone who holds a balance one day, it could be a different balance the next day. And can you kind of explain from the beginning where you thought about these ideas and did I even explain it right? It's, it's not too far off, actually. It's okay, pretty cool. good. Um, so, uh, yeah, so exactly. It's, it's, a, it's a digital currency, uh, fairly similar to Bitcoin, uh, but it has the, this ability to adjust its supply. So it has an elastic supply. Um, that uh, adjusts every day according to the demand in the marketplace. So if the currency is trading above its price target, then it increases the supply. 
And if it's trading below the price target, then it decreases the supply. And the way it does that is, is fairly novel in the sense that it, it um, acts on everyone in the system equally um, proportional to what you own. Right. So there's, there's no um, special class of users. There's no one who extracts seniorage. Um, there's no, uh, you know, demurrage applied. And so, um, because, because of those two qualities and the way that we, uh, um, make the supply go up and down, then it stays non-dilutive the same way that Bitcoin is. So if you own uh, 1% of, you know, the ample, um, network, then you'll always own 1% unless you decide to transfer in or out. Oh, so when does that get, when does that get, uh, like, when does that get flashed? You know what I mean? Like, when does that get frozen? Mm-hmm. That Does it happen every day where you're like, your balance says like you own 1%. So it's at that moment. Is there a specific time that, that it happens? Yeah. So we call that operation, the rebase operation. Um, okay. And that happens once every 24 hours. So at 2 a.m. UTC, there's a 20 minute window um, where, where this operation can take place. Can people um, be transacting out, during this? Uh, they can. Yeah. So, um, there, there's no pause in any sort of transactions. Um, it happens. So we're deployed on top of Ethereum. Um, and so, you know, everything happens sequentially and atomically because there's you know, a single chain of transactions. Um, so there's, there's no pause there at all. So wait, so how does it, so I could see some attack vectors already. Like how does the price Oracle work? How does that, how is that done? Yeah, great question. So we have um, two two oracles essentially. So one provides um, the market data of, of the trading behavior and the demand of the token, which is called Ample um, in the marketplace. Um, and then one oracle provides um, a measure of uh, consumer price index. So we use this to determine what the price target is. Uh, so we, we target the 2019 US dollar. You have a built-in um, with- consumer price index? Um, well, no. So we used uh, data published by the okay. Bureau of Economic Analysis. Right? So, um, you know, in the future, if we did want to you know, untether ourselves from from those sorts of uh, systems, we could target, you know, a basket of commodities, um, something like that. Um, we would still need an oracle, though, to, yeah. to get that data. Um, uh, so, yeah, the idea is that you know, one ample token targets a constant purchasing power through time. So, if the U.S. dollar were to lose value naturally through the course of inflation. You know, one ample, one ample today is uh, targeted roughly a dollar and one cent. And then, you know, 10 years from now, it might be a dollar and seven cents. And then the, the other Oracle um, provides a 24 hour volume weighted average price of, um, of the token in the marketplace. Um, and so the way we attack Oracles is um, if people are familiar with projects like Maker, it's similar to that where so- we have... Um, just very quickly, um, you have a specific price that is set, right? Okay, so that so it's so it's not a stable coin. No, so it's in that's the equilibrium a, um, price target. Is there who sets what that price target is? So that's enforced by the the rules um, included in the smart contract. Okay. Um, so so yeah. So there, there's no um, person behind the curtain, so to speak, pulling levers. Um, so we one one uh, property really that we. Cool. Uh, try to maintain as much as possible is that this should be rules-based, right? So, um, so while I think it's totally natural for, you know, government monies to be um, controlled by a team of, you know, uh, highly experienced, uh, educated individuals, um, I think uh, independent monies um, should be absolutely opposite. They should be rules-based and not controlled by um, any individual or group as much as possible. This is very um, interesting economic theory um, because you're completely relying 
monetary policy on, on machine learning, you know, bringing together the two things that you know really, really well. Um, it's, it's similar to a model of another project that's doing something different, but they're having like two stable coins that bounce off each other and that's how it works. But this is interesting because I never seen, I have never seen a coin that does this, that's basically splitting or doubling itself or doing whatever it needs to do. It's like almost like cells, you know, in your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes we, um, we think of it as a sort of alien space metal, right? Yeah. So if we could have this, this thing in, in the universe, it'd be like a sort of, um, metal that could replicate or combine itself, you know, as, as needed by, by the world around it. Oh, that's um, actually a really great analogy. Um, we think of it more as a commodity than a money oftentimes, because it's like almost like a natural resource. It's, it's out there. It does its thing. It's not really controlled by, by any group of people. So you launched this, this company two years ago, uh, who are some people involved and, uh, what's the state of the project now? Um, yeah, so, so I started this, a lot of these ideas, um, came out uh, by working with, um, a good friend of mine, Evan Quill, um, who, who we've known each other for five or six years now, I think also here in the Bay area. Um, it was, uh, uh, let's see, we also have some people that I worked with in the past from, from Google and, and Uber. Um, so it's a high, really high quality group. Um, we've stayed pretty small. Um, uh, yeah, we're only about, about eight people, I think right now. That's awesome. Uh, That's all you really need to be. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of the, uh, projects in the space. They don't need to be super, super huge, right? Um, you only need to, you only want to be as big as, as you need to be. And, you know, ideally these systems are sort of eventually, you know, community owned anyway, right there. so I think uh, if, if we're successful with this, then there won't necessarily be a company behind it anymore. It would be owned by the users and governed by the users as much as possible. So we're, we're here to sort of um, get started and get it bootstrapped and um, help it grow to what we, we think it should be. Um, but eventually, you know, the, the, the keys to, to governance will be handled, um, you know, on chain and, you know, by the, by the community of users. What's your, what's your ultimate goal for this project? Are you looking at, um, various like financial institutions around the world to be using, um, to be using Ample's or uh, users themselves? What are the um, use cases for you right now? Yeah. So I think that that's a question that often comes up, um, for, for all digital currencies and, so as we, as we were, uh, you know, designing this protocol and working with some of our academic advisors, so we're advised by some, some people at the Stanford Hoover Institute, um, who, you know, that's this institution with, um, great history of great minds. Uh, we've been working there a long time. Like Friedman was there. Um, so when we were, de- uh, you know, designing and looking at this, this protocol that we were building, we, um, came to some in- interesting, conclusions about how we expect it to move in the marketplace. So, um, so the ample protocol is, is fairly unique. There's, it operates according to a rule set that we don't really see anywhere else. Um, and so because of that, you know, these structural differences, um, we, we do think that it will move differently in the marketplace, um, which is something that's actually, um, deceptively very high value, right? So, like one of the biggest strengths of Bitcoin is that it provides you know, a sense of diversity in the financial ecosystem, right? So it's it's untethered to traditional markets like equities, uh, bonds, uh, commodities, that sort of thing, because it's not tied to any sort of underlying yeah. PE ratios, or it doesn't have you know a nation or body of people that needs to serve. It's just, it just sort of is, right? And so it's a, a sort of um, 
uh, source of diversification, right? So, which is, um, I think, super important for um, dealing with risk in, in marketplaces. And so if you look at the, the space of digital currencies right now, because they tend to all be sort of designed around similar economic principles, they all move together the same way, right? If you look at the price actions of... But they're all like that. Top, I mean, even yours is going to be like that too. Um, eventually, yeah. It depends on the point of the life cycle that we're talking about, right? So so in the early days when, when we're small, you know, we've only been uh, launched for about a year. I think we, we launched last year. Um, so in the early days, you know, I, I sort of view us as a type of growth type, uh, system, right? So, uh, it's fairly small right now, but if we're successful, it should be much bigger. Um, and so a lot of people who are in our community, um, think of it the same way. And so they tend to be sort of, um, hodlers or long-term type things. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, beyond that stage, um, uh, you know, we think it will have um, a, di- a very different sort of behavior in the marketplace. This is what we spend most of uh, our um, time describing in, in the white paper that we co-authored with our advisors at the Hoover Institute. Um, so because we have a price target and the sort of equilibrium band around there, um, uh, you know, so there, there are three states to the system. There's the expansionary, the contractionary, and the equilibrium state. Um, uh, we, we think that because there is a sort of... Um, equilibrium point, the shelling point around the, the target price, um, as, uh, you know, usage increases, we'll spend increasingly longer times inside this equilibrium window. So we'll end up with, you know, longer periods of, um, equilibrium where we're trading mm-hmm. around the price target. And then the periods of, uh, being dynamic when it's expanding or contracting. Are there arbitrage sure. opportunities? Um, yes. So remember every day, uh, we, we have this rebase operation that executes, um, and so what that means is that, um, say it expands or contracts, like the, the number of coins you actually own on chain changes, goes up or goes down. So if we go through an expansionary period um, and you end up with more more tokens in your wallet, there's a period of time after which the supply is expanded, but before the price has been um, you know rediscovered in the marketplace, right? So oh, the price, cool, yeah. So the, the supply changes um, instantaneously, but the price in the marketplace relies on on actors, the traders, right? So the protocol can incorporate the price into the supply, but it's the actors in the marketplace that have to yeah, incorporate Yeah, if there's a rush the, to arbitrage, you'll see the... Ba- so the arbitrage is actually what... Not only is it a feature, not only is it a feature, but it's it's almost like it needs to happen. The arbitrage opportunities, people trying like to rush to sell or whatever right after that, mm-hmm. and then a rush to buy on the other side is really what is going to keep that price at the price it needs to be because that's where the arbitrage mm-hmm. is going to stop. So you're like almost uh, saying to the to the ARBs, like, we need you. This is something that's needed for our whole thing to work here. Exactly. So the, the whole uh, you know, really system cool. relies on profit-seeking actors in the marketplace. Oh, I love that. That's, Say that's, that again. that's what drives it. So Ample relies on profit-seeking actors in the marketplace to arrive at equilibrium. And we think that's, um, yeah, uh, absolutely essential. But it's 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 not only is it is it um is it like great you know on a business side of things, but it if you look at economic theory going back to that that those are the actors right. So what what motivates people? What incentivizes us? You have money, profit seeking at the same time. You know that's not greed. That's just the ability to want to put you know food on the plate of your family, right? Then you have social motivation. It's why we care about Facebook likes and things like that. It's just. We want, none of us want to die alone. So we don't want, you know, 
That's where all that mm. social validation comes from. Because at the end of yeah. the day, we all want to have someone at the end, you know, at the, at the end of days. And that's like, to, to me, at least that's a, almost a bigger motivation than financial motivation for some people. So that's what you're going after. You're going after that. Uh, and not only going after, but something that's needed. That's really cool. Um, yeah, we think it's really exciting. Um, we think, uh, so most, most people on the team are, you know, Bitcoiners fans, fans of Bitcoin. Um, and so when, when we were kind of building this project, we were thinking, okay, what's the, what's the smallest change we can make to Bitcoin that's still economically meaningful. And so, oh, interesting. so that, that's sort of, you know, the, what, what drove, um, the original goals behind the project. So it's Bitcoin, but with a little bit more monetary policy. Um, the smallest amount necessary, right. To, to be functionally different. Right. So we, we have a lot of similar properties economically, yeah. at least um, to Bitcoin. Um, What's the, the maximum supply? How does that work? Is there a, um, so there, there's no fixed cap to the supply, right? It's controlled entirely by the rules of the monetary policy on chain. I guess what I'm trying to look at is how do you prevent someone from using a certain amount of money on an exchange or using blended rates or whatever, um, from using the amount of money to like alter the price, you know, cause there's a mathematical way to figure out how to affect the price on one side to arbitrage on the other side. I'm sure you can do it in a mm-hmm. spreadsheet. Um, how do you prevent that? Do you just, hope that the volume is strong enough and it just costs too much money for someone to even be economically incentivized to try to do that? Yeah. Well, remember that every trade in the marketplace requires two people, right? So if, if someone were to, to sort of do some trade, there has to be someone on the other side to take it. Right. So, um, if, if everyone has, you know, perfect visibility into the system, then it might not make economic sense for that trade to happen. So the trades might be on the book, but they might not execute. Um, so we, we've oh, built like a, um, we've built a, a dashboard that we have published that shows all of the, the current state of the system, you know, on chain. Uh, and the goal there is to, um, provide perfect visibility to, to everyone possible. So everyone knows what, what's going on. Um, so it shows things like the current, um, you know, Oracle rate, um, that is reading from the marketplace. Um, and then, you know, as you get closer to the rebase period, you know, it happens every 24 hours. So as you get closer, everyone has increasingly higher visibility about what the um, 24-hour volume-weighted price will be. Um, and so some people might choose to trade ahead of that. And some people might choose to trade afterwards. Um, uh, so there might be a sort of game about you know guessing what it's going to be. But as you get closer, there there's actually a point in time, there's, there's an hour. So um, we have a security delay in the Oracle. So before any value in the Oracle can be read, it has to exist on chain and, you know, visible for at least an hour before any supply oh, chain happens. Right. So, um, so, th- so there's, you know, everyone should have, you know, good knowledge about what to expect before it even happens. So what's, where's the project at this moment? Um, and how can our listeners like follow you and follow what's, you know, what's been going on with the project and, and to get involved? Um, sure. Yeah. So, um, we, we've been, uh, live for coming up on a year now. I think this, this month will be our, our first anniversary. Um, you can, uh, you know, learn more about it by going to our website, ampleforth.org. Um, we, we try to, um, add a lot of, you know, educational materials there as much as possible. So we're trying to sort yeah. of raise the level of discourse, um, economically as much as we can. What um, whatever happened to your Bitcoin Android wallet? Is it, is it still live? Oh. Um, no, no, um, that hasn't been around for, for a good while. Um, and also that, that wasn't completely my, 
project too. I did it with um, yeah, of course. A, a friend of mine, Brian, um, who is now working on, you know, other projects uh, in the space. Do you remember um, what the functionality was of it? Um, yeah. So, um, so it was built on Android, um, written in Java, um, that we basically took, um, you know, Java, current, Java? Java, Java. Yeah. So just we, we jo- took, oh. Yeah. Uh, so we, we basically just took Mike Kern's uh, Bitcoin J library and then put okay. it onto the yeah. Android phone and then put a front end on top. Um, so our takeaways were, um, uh, you know, you can't run a full node on a cell phone. Um, so I think we learned that pretty quickly. Yeah, but the um, ability to run a full node on a device like a cell phone or a small device is something that's like really important for, for people who are trying to scale on multiple layers, like the ability to have as many people as possible running nodes and not, not running nodes on these like mega computers, like four people, you know, that's such a big deal. Mm -hmm. The healthy, the health of a network is how many people are not just mining, but how many people are running nodes. Um, And it's so, so important. It's like, what, what a metric that I look at with Bitcoin, you know? Um, And I remember early on um, you couldn't do anything. You couldn't even put a Bitcoin uh, I remember blockchain.info, I think, was the first Bitcoin app that had the functionality of sending, you know, and receiving actual Bitcoin. That didn't get on, you know, mm-hmm. in, the, in the app store until 2014 or something like that, um, mm-hmm. or, you know, late 2013. There was one that did it in a weird way. They made their app like a co-op type of thing. Like you can get your app in the app store if you had a, if you like your app was basically part of a membership type program. So it's like you go to his website, you pay a dollar to become part of his co-op then you could download the app so that's how he did it for there was another app but people were doing funky things but i guess i wanted to ask you we already answered a bitcoin j what was the infrastructure like of building on top of like mike's thing was one of the only ones um i think i'm not sure if amir taki had come out with uh lib bitcoin yet you know there was there was no infrastructure to to really do things on top of bitcoin um there there wasn't a whole lot out there um it was it's very much like the wild west back then right so uh, you know, hackers just sort of cobbling stuff together yeah. in their basements. Um, I remember meeting some people from, you know, one guy from Germany who was just, uh, he's working as an IT consultant for his company, but he had sort of automated away his job. And so he just sort of like logged in and like pressed a button every day. And he spent the rest of his time building, um, you know, a version of Bitcoin on Ruby just because he, he wanted to, right? Yeah. So, so a lot of the projects sort of started that way. Um, there wasn't a lot of infrastructure. There wasn't a whole lot of usage, you know, either because it was just um, mostly coders, you know, building things for themselves, I think. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because um, there was so little infrastructure. Gareth, my partner, when we launched BitInstant in 2011, he there was one part of the way our financial infrastructure had worked from, from when someone deposited money to when they got their Bitcoin. There was like 15 middlemen and APIs and steps that had to be triggered, triggered, triggered. There was one of them. I forget which one. I think it was when you wanted to use Dwala ACH to buy Bitcoin. Dwala didn't have an API at the time. So it literally didn't have an API at the time. Um, so we had no way of getting notified if like someone paid us or, you know, like what transactions were coming through or which one settled. So literally we'd have to write software that would just log in, you know, like like a virtual browser, basically log in as if it's someone, you know, handheld on a mouse, scrape the data off the page and then put into a database like every hour. Stupid. So many. So if they changed one pixel, one pixel anywhere, if they changed 
any line, any line of CSS, you'd be fucked. <laughs> yeah, web scraping. And that's just still a strategy used by a lot of industries, like a lot of location data companies, you know, do that by But it shouldn't be when you're talking about financial, you know, activity, right. people's money. You shouldn't be web scraping. Um, yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think there's this sort of interesting uh you know dichotomy between like decentralized finance and open finance, right? So I think what you're what you're talking about right now is what I would call like open finance. Okay. Um so um just the ability for anyone to sort of plug into anything through standard APIs as much as possible. Right. Um, so like, uh, India actually is doing a lot of interesting work there because they have this thing called India stack, um, which is basically a national APIs for banking and finance. Um, so yeah, I think you should, you should check that out if you haven't. I think what they're doing there is really interesting. Uh, but of course, none of that's built on blockchains, right? So it's, it's centralized. Uh, yeah. It's run by the government but it's open at least. And so there's sort of open finance that allows a lot of this stuff to happen. So a I cool think project that someone could do is figure out a way, you know, how like you have lot, you can log into your bank account to pull certain data, like with Coinbase or whatever, you can like log into your bank account within their web app. I would like to see someone could build something like talk about like a global, like a, like an American API that allows access into people's bank accounts. And you do it on the blockchain in a way to allow the data to be, um, push only where it's like y- you control where the data goes and who gets access to that data. Is that instead of like just giving one time access and then it has all your banking data, it could be really cool. Um, I'd like, cause then you can really connect like open finance that way. I'd love to see that. Um, but Ampleforth is, is so amazing. And um, I was really intrigued. I'm, I'm adding it to a list of projects to follow that fall into that category of like my hybrid stablecoin type you know i don't i haven't come up with a better general term for it yet or i haven't seen one um but definitely keep you on that list so thank you for for telling for you know for telling me about it and and for coming on the show and sorry we did it so early oh thanks for having me on um yeah it's it's a lot to ask for an engineer to be awake at 6 30 i'm sorry it's worth it for you yeah Brandon, um, thank you so much. I really thank appreciate you so much. it. Yeah, I, I, I would love for people to come visit our uh, community on Telegram, or um, we're also launching a sort of smart faucet pretty soon to record to reward people who provide liquidity launching. Um, so that's going to be launching in the next couple of weeks. So I'm really excited for awesome. that. Um, back the faucet. To, uh, yeah. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com. Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of Blockworks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offert. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Schremp. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers, and information is power.